Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And for today's episode, we have two very special guests with us. Dr. Paul Slavik, Professor of Psychology at the University of Oregon, and Dr. Scott Slavik, University Distinguished Professor of Environmental Humanities at the University of Idaho. Both are co-editors of the Arithmetic of Compassion website and co-authors of Numbers and Nerves. Dr. Paul, Dr. Scott, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you very much, Talia. We're happy to be here. Yep, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I always like to be on uh, things with Scott. Thank you so much. Um, I was so looking forward to this interview as a producer of the Ser Mujer en Latra America documentary map. And many of the interviews that we have done in this podcast on conflicts and gender and militarism, there are many um, blind spots and very a few things that we know in terms of how to develop the right skills mentally and emotionally to process all the information we are researching about. And that's something that really inspired me with your website, The Arithmetic of Compassion. And one of the reasons why I reached out because I I found some answers in what I was experiencing at a personal and professional level in terms of psychic numbing and in terms of pseudo inefficiency, which you're gonna address in a bit. Um, but I want to um, ask you, uh, what inspired this project? How did it came about? Yeah, th- maybe I can uh, begin with this question, actually. Um, so uh, much, many of the ideas on the Arithmetic of Compassion website are based on research that has been happening for, for many decades, dating back to the 1960s, um, that that my father Paul and his colleagues have been doing in the field of psychology on um, kind of um, mainly on human uh, psychological tendencies that limit sensitivity to various kinds of information and complicate judgment and decision making. So this is psychological research that dates back for many decades. And um, although I'm very interested in psychology, my own field is actually literary studies and what we call the environmental humanities, interdisciplinary cultural approaches to environmental issues. And and so, but I I grew up obviously in a household full of psychology and I spent my, my early years talking with my father about psychological ideas. And then as I became older and developed my own area of specialization, I moved into the humanities primarily rather than social sciences. But a few decades ago, we began to realize that there were powerful connections between the work I was doing in literary studies, language and communication studies, and and what Paul does in psychology. We're both runners, long distance runners. We spend a lot of time when we're together uh, jogging in the morning. And as we talked about our work together, we started to realize that there are these really fascinating and important connections between the study of language from a psychological perspective and the study of um, the psychology of risk and decision-making that is sensitive to issues happening in the world. And through these informal conversations, we decided to begin to work on a more formal project together. So uh, in the early 2000s, we started uh, considering how we might prepare a book. The book took more than a decade to to um, uh, develop, uh, and in 2015, Numbers and Nerves, Information, Emotion, and Meaning in a World of Data was published um, as a book. And at the same time, we be- realized that a way of pushing these ideas out to people who would be interested in them might be to develop a, a companion website, which is what you've been referring to, Natalia, the Arithmetic of Compassion website. So for years, we contemplated the book and and worked together, creating the book, combining psychological research and discussion of how to communicate ideas about the Arithmetic of Compassion. And then from the book, spun off the website. And from what you were saying earlier about your own uh, interest in the website in particular, I think actually the idea uh, worked pretty well that you came to the notion 
the ideas from numbers and nerves by way of the website, which is part of what we had hoped might happen. So this is research, or this, these are publications and ongoing work based upon many years of, of study. Paul, do you wanna add something? Sure, um, um, I think uh, I'd like to just comment on where we got the, the name, the arithmetic of compassion. And actually uh, we, uh, we came upon a poem written by a, a Polish uh, poet named Zbigniew uh, Herbert. And the poem was titled, uh, Mr. Cogito Reads the Newspaper. And uh, Mr. Cogito, Mr. Cogito was opening his paper up to the front page and, and he, he saw two stories on that page. One was a story of a, of a, of a murder in a, in a family. Uh, and then the uh, second one was a story about 120 soldiers who had died in a, in a battle. And his eye uh, fixated on the, on the uh, murder in the family and didn't, re, you know, it, it didn't pay much attention to the 120 uh, soldiers. And towards the end of the, the poem, the, 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 uh, the commented that the, the, and with 120, the, the zero at the end turns it into an abstraction and then followed the, the lines, a subject for meditation, the arithmetic of compassion. And we realized that that, that was, um, was really referring to something that we had been studying and talking about the fact that we, uh, we pay a strong attention to individuals or small numbers of people uh, uh, who have been harmed or who are at risk. And we, uh, we, we can't comprehend uh, larger numbers uh, of, of people. And so, so that's how we got the title. And really it's a, it's a deadly arithmetic of compassion as we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes, I'm sure that uh, it doesn't add up the proper way and, and leads, uh, leads us to tolerate a lot of harm in the world uh, that we should not be tolerating. Yeah, um, I came across with your website specifically um, looking for answers to what I was feeling and I was seeing in the world. Um, I'm a journalist, I've covered several conflict zones and it's been very difficult for me to process my own personal traumas, but also seeing how the conscious collective is processing um, conflict and, and, and violence. And, Lately, with my third documentary map, Ser Mujer en Latinoamérica, I started asking this question, like whether stories matter in the way that we perceive the world and whether stories themselves and, and the way media <laughs> creates the stories, you know, and frame them um, are making us feel indifferent or feel empathetic towards certain conflicts versus others. And I think with the pandemic and, you know, just lately with the protests that took place in Colombia, in Palestine, and lately with what's happening in Cuba, um, right now we're, um, you know, recording with uh, the protests in Cuba, um, people are like, their attention is getting like to different places. And, and sometimes we shut off. It's like, I'm gonna pay attention to what's happening to Palestinians, but I cannot talk about what's happening in Cuba because it's a lot. It's like, if I start paying pay attention to every conflict, um, you know, we, we may feel like too much. And I, I found in your website and, and the research that you have done in these three areas of psychic non-being, of pseudo inefficiency and, and the prominence effect, among many others that I'm sure we will discuss today, um, that actually it makes sense <laughs> there's like there's like a limit to what we are feeling and and why we feel a proximity you know matters more than something that's happening miles and miles away or in other cultures so can you share with us a bit of this research what you have found in these three areas yes as scott mentioned these ideas evolved over over a long period of time uh, with research by people like myself and many other colleagues. And um, uh, two uh, particularly important colleagues are, were the psychologist uh, Amos uh, Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. And 
they they uh, they published an important paper in uh, around 1979 uh, uh, called called prospect theory that led to the Nobel Prize being won by Kahneman. Uh, in 2002, Tversky would have won it, but he unfortunately died in 1996 and was not able to then obviously be named as a recipient. Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, the idea behind the uh, Nobel Prize that was um, reflected in, the, in this paper is that, uh, that we, value, we value things in a, in a nonlinear way. That is, uh, whether it's money or lives, you know, the uh, very small numbers uh, uh, have a big influence on us. We, let's, let's talk about lives. We, we value lives uh, in a way that the very first life is very important to us. The difference between no one at danger, in danger and one person is, is huge. But then um, the second life doesn't seem twice as import, uh, important that is, we have two lives at risk. That doesn't seem twice as important as when there are one life, one life at, at risk, and it and it keeps going like that. And very quickly, it, it sort of flattens out. That is, our concern, our feelings, uh, uh, hit kind of a, a limit and become flat. This is the way our feelings work, and our feelings are what how risk is represented in us through our mostly through feelings rather than through calculations. Some people can do calculations, and that's very important. But for most of us, the representation of risk in our mind is through our, through our intuitive feelings. And these feelings don't do arithmetic very well. And so I saw this in, in, uh, in the Kahneman-Fursky paper on prospect theory. They had a, had a picture of this, a, a line that starts, uh, which represents the valuing of lives as the number of lives increases. And it starts very steep, going from zero to one. It's a big big difference. And then when it gets up to two, it's not twice as big as one. And then it starts to flatten out. And uh, I, I thought, well, this is terrible. Because uh, what it means is that there, we have no consistent valuation of a life, a life that is so very important to us, if it's the first or the only life that we're caring about, um, loses its value in, uh, in the context of many lives at risk. Um, and, uh, and I thought, and this is, this is bad. It can, it leads us to, uh, not to react as strongly when there's more, more, uh, more lives. And, and you can, you can do this as a thought experiment. I mean, think about if I told you that there were six, six people whose lives were in danger, um, and you think about that and you're, and you'll have some feeling of concern. Now I say, oh, wait a minute. It's seven people you're not gonna feel any different, six and seven. That is, you know, the difference between zero and one, you'll feel strongly about the one, but you won't feel any difference between six and seven. I mean, that's the flattening out. And then also what our research showed. So I started doing research on this specifically, and we found that in, indeed, this is the way our, our, our feelings uh, influence us with regard to lives. But we also found something uh, that wasn't in the prospect theory paper that is even uh, more disturbing. It's not that we become insensitive, that as the numbers get bigger and bigger, we may lose feeling altogether. They just, we can't even relate to, they're just numbers. And, and our, our concern drops. And we have a, a, a term for that called uh, saying, the more who die, the less we care. It's a terrible way to react to the problems of the world. And so this is what is called psychic numbing. And it's the first pillar of the, uh, the intellectual uh, uh, background of the website, psychic numbing, this insensitivity and then decline. And then uh, as we continued to do research, we found something else about the way our feelings uh, mislead us. And, and that's what we call pseudo inefficacy. We, we found that if we, uh, uh, invited people to uh, donate money to a, uh, to a humanitarian aid organization that was trying to help starving children. Um, that, uh, and, we, and we showed a picture of a, of a child who was starving in a certain country and gave this child's name and, and age, a certain percentage of people would donate. Uh, and, but then 
we, we thought, well, we would, uh, it, let's see if we can increase this percentage. Uh, and we, we, did, we, uh, we did that by, tried to do that by putting next to her picture, the fact that there are millions of children in her region starving. We thought that this would impress upon people how serious a problem this was and even more motivate them to donate. And it had just the opposite effect. The donations dr uh, dropped in almost in half when the statistics of the big problem was put next to the, to the face of the child. And it took us a while to figure out what was happening, but we realized then that, that uh, it didn't, uh, that we, you know, we donate uh, uh, to help others, first because they need our help, and second because we feel good about doing it. We call it the warm glow. We get a warm glow of good feeling by helping others. And it didn't feel as good to people to help this child when they realized that there were many other children they weren't helping. So then they didn't help the child they could help. And so it's a sense of efficacy, you know, that, well, it's like my helping this child is a drop in the bucket. What, you know, why bother? You know, and this is not rational. You know, we shouldn't not help uh, people we can help just because we can't help them all. And so we put a rather strange name on this, uh, 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 this false sense of inefficacy. We call it pseudo inefficacy. And that's the second element of the arithmetic of compassion. And then there's a third element, uh, a psychological element, which we call the prominence effect, which is a, a little bit different. It's a different decision-making um, um, deception where uh, if we have to take a choice between, between helping others and protecting our own security, we almost always go with security, no matter how many other people uh, how many people are going to be harmed by our not helping them? And that's so. These three uh, features: psychic numbing, pseudo inefficacy, and what we call the prominence effect—the prominence of our security—all uh, uh, lead us to um, to turn away from helping large numbers of people. And this is what we call uh, the deadly uh, arithmetic of compassion. And this is what underlies the uh, the website. But I think we should also just talk a little bit about uh, the the relationship between reason and emotion, and you know the, these elements of the arithmetic of compassion that Paul has just been talking about are are largely connected with our emotional response to information, and there's another dimension to this, which is the the rational, deliberate, analytical um, this, uh, contemplation. Of, of these situations or this in this kind of psychological response. Once we have a conversation like we're having right now and we analyze the situation, we realize actually there's something ironic and even potentially catastrophic about these emotional tendencies that there's a something improper about devaluing any lives after the first life that, under consideration. And this rational analytical tendency is also part of the way human beings process information. So the emotional response, the gut rapid response is, is called by psychologists system one, and the rational, deliberate, analytical approach to information is system two. And in order to think effectively about situations in the real world, we actually need both. And there's no way we can commit completely remove the emotional part of the, the process, um, nor do we necessarily want to, obviously want to remove the rational component. We need to find a way for them to work effectively together. So sometimes we refer to this as the, as the dance of, of um, reason and emotion. And, um, and this is why we, we may want to use the emotional aspect, the, the, the telling of poignant stories about individual cases in these catastrophic humanitarian conditions in order to um, provoke and, and produce uh, attention on the part of readers or viewers. We want them to call, to call their attention, but then we want them to analyze the situation and realize that there is not only this one suffering person um, but but actually, this is amplified to a much larger scale and probably needs to be dealt with through better public policy. 
So we really, we, we want to use the emotional trigger, I would say, but we also don't want to leave it at that because we know that pretty soon people's emotions are going to flatten out and they won't be paying much attention or experiencing much concern. We need, in a sense, to transfer the emotional awareness to an analytical response to the situation in order to, to help our societies come up with better, large scale and more durable responses than, than can happen merely through that initial emotional reaction. And I think it's interesting to, to, uh, to think about, well, why, why do we uh, behave this way? You know, why do, we, um, why do we experience psychic numbing and let that influence us? And, and uh, uh, as Daniel Kahneman has pointed out, uh, the human brain is, is lazy and, and, and if we think we can answer a question or deal with something, a situation with our, with our feelings, it's easier to respond with our feelings than to analyze the situation because that takes more cognitive effort and knowledge and, and, and time. So we, uh, we, we tend to mostly rely on our feelings. And we do that because, because uh, our feelings are usually a good guide that, you know, to how we should behave if, if those feelings have been, been conditioned by experience, which many of the times they are. So it's easy to use our feelings. It works for us um, and, and it feels right. But it, but it misleads us in certain situations. And those situations are when the scale of the problem is big because, because our feelings don't add up properly uh, when more lives are at risk, they, they don't multiply uh, and, and so forth. And, and uh, from an evolutionary uh, spec, uh, perspective, one could see that, well, when we lived in caves, you know, it wasn't irrational to use your feelings. And we didn't have mathematical mathematics and, and science to guide us in our uh, decisions. We just used our, our feelings and responded quickly. If we heard a, a sound in the bush that sounded ominous, we, we didn't stop to try to analyze it in any way. We just ran, you know, so our feelings are very, very efficient and powerful uh, in helping us deal with immediate threats. Uh, nearby, and that, uh, you know, and, and therefore we were able to survive uh, and and evolve in a dangerous world, relying on our feelings. But but today's world is very different from the <laughs> when we lived in caves, obviously. And I and think so, that's why it's very confusing yeah. too, because you know the rationale and the emotions are sometimes so confusing between humans that we don't know why we're acting the way that we are acting, and you know, identifying our needs, you know, in emotional intelligence is not taught in schools. Like you have to, you know, invest in your own personal development if you want to learn how to manage your emotions or how to answer properly or know when the brain is kicking in or when you can trust. And um, I, I want to um, discuss that, that in a bit um, further in the discussion, but I wanted to trace back to something that you said, Paul, on uh, two, two things. The first one is what, what creates this disconnection between the scale. Specifically, I'm gonna bring something that we discuss a lot in the podcast that for the audience members, um, reflection as an example. Because when I'm hearing you, I know that this may not be connected, but I, that's why I want to bring it. Um, when we address the abortion talk or, you know, the talk for the abortion, abortion, we are sometimes, you know, seeking to preserve life, to preserve the life of an unborn child. Sometimes that's the main conversation. But then when we go to the mass level of nuclear weapons, the rationale kicks in as in, oh, we can wipe out entire millions of people and territories and not even, you know, flinch, you know, like why is that an explanation to, to the psychic numbing that happens as in, you know, nuclear weapons are the maximum expression of psychic numbing because it's like, just press the button and deal with it, you know? And the second question that I had was in terms of humanitarian intervention and the international law, humanitarian or, or human rights law. Because you, you're talking about this relationship between reason and emotion and Scott also shared this. And 
morale, where does morale kings in? Um, and perhaps this is my hypothesis and that's why I wanna bring it to you listening to your conversation is perhaps humanitarian intervention and human rights law is so analytical, is so focused on numbers, is so focused on, you know, the, the, the scale of the beauty of human rights and the beauty and the idealization of, you know, a better world <laughs> through liberal lenses, but there's no emotion in it. Like you, you, you know, you interview a human rights lawyer and sometimes they speak from, you know, the mind, they don't speak through the emotion. And if you talk to the emotion, then they shut off. <laughs> it's like, no, like, um, so I just wanted to, I, I don't know if there's a question there, but it's specifically just <laughs> tying in um, to what you're explaining because it really made me think on that. Yeah, let me um, lead off and then Scott can, can uh, join in. Um, with regard to the abortion um, versus uh, nuclear, nuclear war, um, uh, that's a very uh, uh, insightful observation that you've made. And I, in fact, have been studying uh, nuclear weapons and from the standpoint of the psychic, psychic numbing, because it's clear that, uh, that uh, we tolerate these weapons without having a, a, a comprehension of what, uh, you know, how terrible uh, they they are, and whether and that the fact that they're really you can't really justify the the use of these weapons for any short term military gain. I mean, the the harm caused is so vast, but we may not be appreciate appreciating that. So and as and then when we we talk about the lives of individuals, uh, as in the abortion, uh, we can relate to that as 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 one uh, individual in a much uh, more powerful way. But uh, one of the conclusions from the research is that we, we, we don't have a consistent valuation of human life. So we value the one greatly and the many, uh, many less. And there's a, there's a very powerful example of that uh, with regard to nuclear weapons. Um, there was a, uh, a, a lawyer, well, I should first say that in the United States, the, uh, the president has the sole authority to order the use of nuclear weapons against some adversary. And, and there's uh, someone who follows the president along with the secret codes um, that are needed uh, in order to authenticate an order. So if the president gives an order, you have to sure, especially in this era of fake news, you know, is this really the, the right you know, valid if it's a thing that we need to obey because there's a powerful, uh, uh, need to obey, obey an order from the president. So this person has, has the, the code uh, that would uh, say this is, a, this is a valid order. And so what uh, Mr. Fisher proposed was that the person who, who carries the code, that those codes should be uh, implanted in that person's chest. And, and that in order for the president to authenticate an order that, that might kill millions, uh, he would have to, they, they would have to uh, kill the, the, the person to cut out the, uh, the, the code from this person's chest in order to kill millions. People were, were horrified by this, you know, that you would kill this person, <laughs> but, in, but didn't have that same horror about thinking about the vast harm that would happen once the, the order was carried out. So it shows that we were, were, were incoherent in our thinking of, of, uh, uh, about this, unless we step back and think carefully uh, about that. So that's kind of my response to your abortion versus nuclear war. Um, uh, Could it be you, also, sorry, that that person has a proximity to the to the person that's about to be killed, and that's why the connection is deeper. It's like I can't preserve this life. I I can't I can't allow it to end. <laughs> I don't know, even if we are going to fulfill a job of launching the bomb. Yes, because again, it, this is all about uh, when we're relying on our feelings. So our feelings are really you know prevent us from wanting, from, from killing the, an individual near, nearby. But, and, and so distance is also, 
uh, affects our, our uh, emotional connection. So whether it's, it's distance in, in geography, you know, in, in, in you know, that sort of distance or, or culture uh, or, or, or time, near versus far, far off consequences, all of these things affect our emotions. And, the, and, it's, and our emotions are what represent the risk of this. So all of this, you're right, it, uh, the proximity makes a difference here. But one can ask, well, well, should it? I mean, the fact that these people are not right in front of us doesn't mean that their lives are less valuable. It shouldn't. So, so I would also place this conversation in the context of the, the challenges that journalists face or other communicators. So knowing the ideas that we've been talking about after becoming familiar with some of these psychological tendencies, which are ironic and, I mean, and potentially catastrophic for our species, given the situations we face in the world today, the humanitarian issues, the ecological problems that we're considering. So as a journalist or a communicator of another kind, a filmmaker or an artist, um, anyone involved in trying to communicate ideas about the world, how do we use these concepts? And a lot of it is related not only to uh, physical or emotional distance or proximity, but abstraction versus concreteness. And one of the things that happens with distance of any kind is that phenomena start to seem abstract, um, you know, hard to visualize, hard to conceptualize. So part of the role of a communicator is to help the audience visualize in a very concrete and immediate way phenomena that may be distant. And, and much of this boils down to thinking of very specific examples, specific case studies or specific stories, how to, how to take an abstraction and intensify it into a, a visualizable, individualized story. And then I would say part of the responsibility of a journalist would be to pull back and present the larger picture. How do you, do you tell the intense, emotionally evocative story and then scale it back up to the larger problem in a way that won't simply cause the reader or the viewer to, to become numbed and disinterested? And so uh, sometimes when I'm describing what I think is, are effective examples of communication in humanitarian and ecological uh, situations, um, I, I talk about a telescoping process, a moving back and forth between very poignant individualized stories and then a pulling back with the, to give the bigger picture and then pulling in again, go back and forth like a, a telescope might, might present this, the close up and then the far away. And I think you can do the same thing with writing. Uh, with where you move back and forth between sto specific stories and bigger explanations. And we really need both of these in order to think coherently, effectively, accurately about many of the situations that we're trying to understand in the world. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I think uh, an important example of the, of the telescoping uh, uh, concept that you, that you raised uh, has to do with uh, with uh, climate change and the way we report uh, new, new scientific information about climate change. So often that is done uh, it, it, looking at the, at the big picture, like, you know, uh, we project uh, so many uh, centimeters of sea level rise, you know, uh, over the next uh, decade or two. And I think that information uh, doesn't register for most people. It doesn't, doesn't convey you know what the reality of that is from an experiential standpoint. It's just these are just some numbers that are not very comprehensible, uh, and so then I think one should, uh, the journalist should not only present the, the scientific data, which you know they should present that, but they should also then give an example of that people can relate to. So, for example, you know what what would that look like? You know, uh, on a on a coastline that is familiar to you. You know, when the sea level rises. How will that coastline shift, and and you know, and structures on the on the coast that are meaningful and important to you will now be underwater, 
you know, and, and what will that look like? What, you know, help people visualize that. That, that will then bring it home in a, in a more, you know, and, and, and stimulate the emotional response that's necessary for a better comprehension and motivation of, acts, of action. I understand the role of journalists myself, I am, <laughs> but I also wonder where the, does the media industry fits? Because journalists have a role and they report stories, but as we see media companies have become less interested in, you know, seeing the telescope vision and more interested in war journalism and, you know, fulfilling economic interests and probably in some countries, political ones. And um, <laughs> we have seen it in the United States how he has played this mm -hmm. out. But we've seen in the past like four or five decades a shift in media, media's, international media's importance in feeding the mindset or framing conflict. And we saw in the 1970s with the Vietnam War how the CNN effect was very, very important to frame you know, not only peace movements, but also to, to change the conversation on why engage in war. And the, then we saw in the 1990s with the Bosnian war, with the Rwandan genocide, specifically the Bosnia or, or the um, Serbia, um, the Yugoslavia disintegration, how it became the first mediatic war where journalists were invited in convoys and come over from different parts of the world and cover this. But then along the lines of 2000s, we see that the media's importance in changing policy or foreign policy waned in a way that we have not seen before. Um, not only because of the proliferation of media outlets, but also the rise of social media networks. And um, I, I wonder whether or not we are placing too much faith <laughs> in journalists when they are part of an industry or companies that do not necessarily care about telescoping or care about the big picture because they are asking us, I mean, I've been part of this monster myself. I work for news agencies and newspapers internationally and it's been you know, very tiring, not only as an employee, but also as a freelancer to get a story across because they are like numb. It's like you have to deliver four or five stories a day. We don't care if it fits a big picture or whether or not someone will read it or not because these are products. The news stories are products themselves and we need to deliver them. And then for the freelance part to get a story across, they're always asking for the numbers. Like how many people are there? Oh, if, when you reach 50, I mean, I was covering the Guatemala um, fire in Hogar Seguro in 2017, and 43 girls were assassinated in the public shelter due to a fire. It was an institutional fire. And they were asking me before, you know, accepting my story as a freelancer, you know, how many? 43 girls. Oh, were they indigenous? Were they, um, you know, homeless? Did they have families? And when, 43 is not enough. When they reach 50, we can run your story. And, and for me, it was very hard as a freelancer to, 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 to understand that. Like, you know, 43 is a lot of numbers, like a big number. And, you know, it started dawning on me that not all lives were valued the same, even by international media standards. Like it could create like a huge coverage if it was in Italy or United States or you know like main countries that the international media pays attention but if it's Guatemala or you know El Salvador it's like oh you know it's not that important in foreign policy lenses or by certain international news standards and I think that's bad and I would like to I mean that's my my judgment on it of course um, but I, I would like to explore with you how how are you seeing the evolution of, of the media industry yeah. can I can I jump in here I think that's a, a great summary of the transitional situation of journalism today, Natalia. I think you did a really good job of talking about the kind of the, the professional crisis of the journalism industry. Um, and, and a lot of it is related to the proliferation of outlets where 
you know, we gather much of our news, not from the traditional newspapers or uh, TV news or other sources, but from, from websites that appeal to our personal ideologies. Um, I, I sometimes call it the the micro ideologies um, that that we, we that enable us to gravitate to specific websites where we know that our our view of the world will somehow be satisfied or confirmed by by the information we receive and the proliferation of outlets I think has greatly complicated the the uh, the way the profession of journalism functions um, but I I still think that the the basic processes of the human mind, the way we we receive information and think about it that we were talking about earlier in this conversation, the way we gravitate to small digestible stories that we can understand. They're on a human scale, so they, they resonate with us um, as opposed to vast diffuse bodies of data. Um, the, the, this still is the way our minds work. And I was gonna say that one of the essays in the book Numbers and Nerves is by Robert J. Lifton and his colleague, Greg Mitchell. Lifton is a psychologist who, who coined the term psychic numbing in the 1960s. Originally, he was describing the way survivors of the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, survived that experience and the way they numbed themselves to the vast horror of their experience. But the the essay by Lifton and Mitchell is called The Age of Numbing. And he's what they're describing in that relatively recent article is, is this inundation uh, uh, with information that many of us are experiencing. I think you were, you were alluding to that yourself, Natalia, that, that we receive so much information, so many stories about disasters and traumas and dangers all around the world that we can easily become numb to the many different stories that we're receiving. Um, and so the, the challenge is, I, I think, to, to crystallize these stories in a way that will break through the numbness. Um, and around the time when the book Numbers and Nerves was published, in 2015, there was a very interesting example of one particular case um, in, in the refugee crisis in the Middle East, um, one specific case presented in a visual image that broke through all of the noise, all of the abstract information. And this is the example of the photograph of the young boy from Syria named Elan Kurdi, uh, who was, I believe, three years old he, his family had crossed the Aegean Sea. He's from Syria. They, they crossed Turkey and they were on their way to, to Greece. And he uh, tragically drowned. And, and there's an image of him lying on the sand. Um, actually, I think he's, it's on the Turkish beach. And this, you know, there had been many, many stories about large numbers of Syrian refugees and all of their struggles, and but presented in a, on a large scale, and the, the international community didn't pay much attention. But that one visual image of Elon Kurdi that was published in September 2015 became an international sensation. It broke through the noise, and and there were there was a great galvanizing of. Uh, public attention and international resources to support Syrian refugees. So I still think even in this climate of, you know, two very complicated media environment, um, the principle of telling a poignant story and making uh, issues of the world real to the public, making these issues real still has validity and there are there remain outlets um, that that are attentive to the importance of validizing uh, validating serious situations in the world through poignant stories and potent images. Um, and so I, I understand what you were saying about the Guatemala story and and the need for it to rise to a level of significance before the media would would want the story. Um, but I also think the individualizing of the larger situations continues to be a powerful motivator for media outlets. And there is a need to communicate these stories 
to people who are paying attention. Um, it may be that that you know a lot of the people you're telling these stories to, you're writing the articles for, already kind of understand the the basic issues that are going on in the world, but they still need to be reminded and motivated to act. And and so writing for the choir, writing for people who already are anticipating, you know the information about these ongoing stories, that's an important thing to aim for as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that also the barrier is that sometimes, uh, depending on where the outlet is from, like from example, the United States, some stories from Latin America are not as important as, you know, stories in Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq, because they are part of what the foreign policy of that country is for. Like, for example, in the UK or France, they're interested also in the Middle East or in Africa, but they don't necessarily pay attention. And, you know, like that's also plays a part the past colonizers mindset of, you know, where were my zones of influence? And that's what I'm going to pay attention to and not necessarily the whole world. And, and that's a dynamic that I've also felt like it, it can go to like other international relations fields. Um, but as a journalist, I can see why, you know, like if I send a story on Colombia to the United States outlets, they are more prone to accept it than if I send a story on something that happened in Costa Rica or, you know, like it's just not as prominent. Um, which brings me to uh, and one of the last questions of this interview in terms of the COVID-19 and how this pandemic with everything that came, but in terms of international media exposure and social media networks, if we combine the two, um, have affected if something or more, I don't know, or in different ways, um, our conscious collective. I think that uh, COVID has talk, taught us a lot of lessons, unfortunately. Uh, and some of it relates very directly to the arithmetic of compassion. Um, I think what we've, what we've seen is that uh, as the numbers have increased, the numbers of people infected and who have died, both in the United States and around the world, uh, and those are regularly reported. They are reported daily by the, both the, the mainstream media and in other uh, more specific uh, media. And, and yet I think we've become numb to those numbers, you know, that uh, uh, in the United States, you know, the death toll went from 100,000 to 200,000 and so forth, it's now over 600,000. And I think those numbers just bounce off people. I mean, we know there's a lot of people, but we don't, as another 100,000 are added, we don't feel any different or respond any any differently. Um, uh, I, one of the one of the lessons we we've learned from COVID is that um, that COVID and other uh, uh, important uh, things that happen to affect a large numbers of people they're influenced by human behavior, which is motivated by thinking and psychology and and. We need to we need to understand the behavior and incorporate that in in our in our uh, treatments and policies. So I think that that uh, with COVID, uh, which is very much influenced by behavior, uh, that hasn't been recognized. And we we look uh, to to the the uh, the uh, uh, scientists, the epidemiologists, the virologists, the public health people, you know, who have valuable knowledge, and we need to be. Um, paying attention to them, but we also need to then couple what they're telling us to do with knowledge of behavior, you know, which it will tell us when we will or will not uh, follow the guidelines of the scientists. And that's been the, the, a major problem now. I mean, people uh, for a long time have been, many people have resisted uh, wearing masks, isolating, you know, uh, not going into crowds and so forth. And more recently, there a uh, significant percentage are refusing to get vaccinated. Well, these are behavioral issues which can be informed by understanding, well, you know, why is it that people are doing this and how can we better communicate to them and motivate them uh, to, take, to take precautions? So I think that's been a very uh, important lesson that we need to involve the, uh, the behavioral scientists as well as the the, the health scientists um, uh, uh, in, in this effort. Another thing we've, we've learned from COVID 
is how uh, how information uh, can be politicized, you know, uh, and how this can uh, impede the uh, you know the effectiveness of of uh, applying the science science to uh, to eradicate a difficult disease like this. And so, because because of uh, various political uh, elements, uh, now people uh, you know. Uh, many people refuse to get uh, vaccinated or wear masks and so forth. And uh, this has been very, very harmful, even in the face of imminent, imminent death. So this is what we're face seeing in, in the United States, that, uh, that uh, people who have not been vaccinated are, are, are experiencing high rates of, of contracting the new uh, variant, the Delta variant, and they're being hospitalized and they're being die uh, and dying. And they are, they are still, and many of them refusing to get they're vaccinated uh, until sometimes they're in the hospital and they say, oh, can I be vaccinated now? It's too late. So, so it's that information, uh, uh, important information can be politicized in a way that really uh, uh, blocks the, the, uh, the use of that uh, information effectively. So one, one of the things that I'm especially interested in in relation to COVID-19 is this, the question of vulnerability the feeling of vulnerability, or in my field of the environmental humanities, we often use the term precarity, how the feeling of being precarious or in, in danger. And I actually think that there may be a, a positive lesson from COVID-19 in that so many of us, if we can remember how we felt at the beginning of the pandemic and how we were so worried about any contact we would have with people, we were, this mysterious, very dangerous disease was spreading and all of us felt precarious in a way that we may not have felt in our previous lives. And so I'm fascinated with the, the way language and various communication strategies might be able to uh, produce or inspire a feeling of positive precarity, mindfulness might be another way to put it. You know, so often there are situations in the world that we're complacent about. We don't pay enough attention. And this could be the struggles of various groups of people, or it could be ecological issues around the world, including issues like global warming that ultimately will affect all of us. Um, we're complacent, too easily complacent. So how might we try to inspire uh, a feeling of universal precarity, uh, a sensitivity or a mindfulness toward these situations that really ought to command our attention. And I'm wondering whether we can kind of bottle some of the psychological lessons, actually put, put them together and, and take these lessons and use them going forward uh, in communicating to people uh, in a way that makes them not just gather information about news stories in some sort of abstract way. Oh yeah, that's more information for me to put in my mental library, but rather give them information about the world that inspire a sense of personal vulnerability and connectedness to the situation we're describing. So, so I, I think uh, to share a powerful, uh, feeling of precarity with readers and viewers um, is an important lesson for communicators that we might take away from the COVID experience when all of us were feeling precarious in a way that we can remember. Uh, there's also, I think, a, a second uh, lesson that goes with with what you're what you're saying about precarity, and that is uh, precarity will get our attention and and make us concerned and want to do something. And then the, set, then the next phase is, well, what can we do? What can, yeah. can I as an individual or we as a society do? And so, so without a sense of, of direction, uh, 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 this is the efficacy issue, you know, uh, that, uh, that we think is, is effective, uh, then, then feeling precarious is just gonna make us uh, anxious and, and disturbed and, and we'll turn away and try to block things out. And, and this is what was very evident in the story that you talked about Scott about the little boy on the beach in um, uh, in Turkey in the Syrian war and uh, the fact that you know 250,000 deaths prior to that uh, and people didn't care about until they saw that picture and what we observed is that for about a month 
there was, you know, it, it woke people up. It, it made them feel, realize how precarious the lives of Syrians and refugees were, and they were concerned and wanted to do something. And where there was something that they could do, like give money to the Red Cross on behalf of, you know, caring for refugees, they did this big time. We had statistics in Sweden, for example, that took in 150,000 Syrian refugees in 2015 and set up a, a fund in the Red Cross to care for them. That was going, uh, raising about 8,000 American dollars a day. And then the picture came out and overnight it went from 8,000 to $430,000. You see the response. And then we tracked that response over the next month as it gradually de uh, uh, declined. And, and so people eventually stopped giving uh, and, and they also then couldn't think of other things to do. And so they turned their attention elsewhere. So what, what the, the precarity did was create a window of opportunity. When people are awake, they're concerned, they wanna act. And then the question is, you know, do, do I have options? So, so I think we have to give people options as well as, as, as making uh, them appreciate the precarity. Then we have to give them uh, things they can do that are effective. And that's, and that's what we have on our website. We're cognizant of that on the Arithmetic of Compassion website, where we have a section called Take Action, where we try to, to uh, give some direction as to now that we hopefully have got you concerned about psychic numbing and, and all these other factors, you know, here's, here's what you might uh, do. You know, it raises a lot of questions in specifically with the COVID-19 pandemic, the lack of direction, because we saw the behavior of states pulling away from international solidarity that could be found in the immigration crisis of Syria and other conflicts. Um, we saw that each state was on their own when it all started closing borders. And, you know, some had like a very war rhetoric and very um, like, don't mess with us. Uh, we are going to harsh, put harsh lockdown to the people. And I wonder if people are feeling powerless or frustrated because of this situation of the COVID-19 pandemic, not only because of the lack of direction, but also because of the mistrust that was harbored, not only by leaders, but also by communities. Mm. Uh, that's well that's a huge and fascinating question Natalia and um, I guess my initial response would be to suggest that all of us regardless of gender we we have both the emotional and the rational capacity and that you know we I know that traditionally we've tended to separate the the, the male sensibility and the female sensibility as being somehow distinct from each other. And there may be some truth to, to the tendencies of, of men to think in one way and women to think in another, um, speaking in very broad, essentializing terms. But I, I prefer not to essentialize in that way and say, you know, women think this way and men think that way. And, but rather to emphasize the fact that all of us have within us both the rational tendencies and the emotional tendencies in, in some, some degree or another. And that I, I would say for all of us, uh, the understanding, especially with regard to processing information we receive about the world, I think there's some benefit to be had from understanding the way our minds work. And the goal of the numbers and nerves and arithmetic of compassion effort is to help help people, not only professional psychologists and professional journalists and, and writers, but I, I would say anyone who looks at the website and, or looks at the book, help all of us understand our own minds better. And once we uh, begin to gain this understanding, we can recognize in ourselves the way we are responding to the information we're receiving about the world. And I believe it's helpful, ultimately helpful for us to have this deeper self-understanding Part, in part because we can guard against the exaggerated and problematic responses that we may be having. Um, when we, we see ourselves experiencing psychic numbing, we know that we're not responding strongly enough to a situation that deserves our strong response because of the fact that we're experiencing numbing 
um, partly because of the scale of a situation that we're learning about, we can push back a little bit against that tendency uh, if we understand, if we recognize in ourselves what's happening. So again, I would, I would caution against essentializing the different responses of men and women. I think all of us are capable, men are capable of responding with a, a strong emotional reaction to phenomena in a positive way. And women are certainly capable of uh, uh, rational analysis of information they're receiving about the world. So I, I wouldn't um, strongly categorize people as being different um, merely because of gender. Um, so what, you know, what I hope is that people who are interested in the topics we've been discussing today will maybe take a few minutes and look at the Arithmetic of Compassion website. And, and the, these concepts are very briefly and clearly explained in portions of the website. And then also there's a blog section of the website where the concepts of the arithmetic of compassion are applied to situations in the world. And it's a growing part of the website. We're frequently adding new blog entries uh, describing things that are happening in the world and how some of these concepts might be applicable. Then we would also happily invite you or, and your colleagues who are interested to somehow contribute to the website. That would be a very important way of amplifying the messages of the website and maybe telling some of your own stories as you know, journalists who are attempting to tell stories about serious situations in the world and you know, what it's like to try to tell these stories and, and the, the struggle of finding media outlets, the, the, the challenges of uh, achieving the reactions in readers that you hope to achieve. These would be interesting stories to include on the website. Just a, uh, another uh, beacon of, of hope here in the, uh, addressing you, your question, and Natalia. Um, has to, hope, we need it. Yeah, <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that basically uh, there's a lot of goodness in, in humanity. Um, um, and and we, have, we, we do value, have values that are uh, very, uh, uh, correct, important, uh, and and uh, you know make would make the world a better place if we would be we would act on those values. And one of the uh, the insights from what we call the prominence effect, which is part of the arithmetic of compassion, is that that uh, that uh, sometimes we we uh, we we deviate, we, we act in ways that contradict our values. And so, for example, uh, many people really do value the protection of people on, you know, distant from them, uh, different from them, and who are being abused in large numbers. We say this is important. Uh, it's important that, uh, for moral reasons and humanitarian reasons, that we that that we care about these people and we help them. Uh, this is a sincere value that people have. But then we get put in a in a choice situation between acting on those values and 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 the possibility that it may threaten some uh, security interests we have. That is, if uh, if our nation goes in and intervenes in a sovereign nation that's killing its people uh, for political reasons, that that puts our military at risk. It's expensive. It's politically uh, unpopular, and so forth. And 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 those values are, are what we call prominent. They, they lead us away from responding to the fact that we have a moral obligation to, to, uh, to help these people. And, and we need to figure out a way to do it. And, and, if we, and maybe it's not that putting our military there, maybe that's not the right way, but what can we do? What should we be doing to help large numbers of people who are being brutalized by either national or other interests uh, and you know that we need to act on our values. So prominence uh, gives us insight as to why we sometimes act in ways that violate our values. And once we know that, then we can say, well, wait a minute, you know, how can I, how can I act in a way that is consistent with my humanitarian values? So we hope that insights like that will lead us, uh, will, will, will lead us to, to uh, 
take advantage of the fact that most people are good and and you know uh, and and uh, maximize the uh, the beneficial ways that we as individuals and our and our, our governments uh, can act to make the world a better place. Yeah, I do believe that there's goodness all around, but it depends where you focus. If your attention yeah. focuses on the bad, and yes, that's all you're gonna see. And and I think also something that we've learned in this podcast is the stories we tell and how we frame situations, how we frame circumstances. Do we frame it through the lenses of victimhood or do we frame it through the lenses of, yeah, like something good can come out from this adversity. So I think that that's something very rich to take with us. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Um, we are going to list all the links of the works of Paul and Scott on the description box of this episode. So I invite everybody to check it out. And um, yeah, we hope to continue conversing with you and with all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Natalia. Thanks, Natalia. If you love this episode, share with us your comments on our Instagram account at womenhood underscore IR. And remember to subscribe to our monthly newsletter to receive the latest news and upcoming events for our community. If you want to support our podcast growth, join our Patreon and help us provide economic opportunities to our female collaborators across the globe. All the links will be available on this episode's description box. Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you soon.